Welcome to the Real Estate Guys radio program. Sometimes you don't want to sit around and wait for equity to happen. You want to make it happen. Today, we're going to talk about strategies to force equity on today's Real Estate Guys radio program. All aboard. Registration is now open for the Real Estate Guys 14th Annual Investor Summit at Sea. Imagine spending an entire week with like-minded investors, world-class educators, and real-world professionals. Returning this year are sales legend Tom Hopkins, international developer Beth Clifford, attorneys Mauricio Raul and Jeffrey Verdon, and the author of The Creature from Jekyll Island, G. Edward Griffin. New for this year, commercial mortgage broker and syndicator Michael Becker, personal development icon Kyle Wilson, and Ken McElroy's partner Ross McAllister. And joining us live and in person for his third Investor Summit, Robert Kiyosaki. It all begins February 26, 2016 in Miami, Florida. Visit realestateguysradio.com and click the tab that says Summit to learn more and reserve your spot. This transformational week is like no conference you've ever attended. Go to realestateguysradio.com and click Summit and make plans to spend a week with the Real Estate Guys and an all-star faculty on the 14th Annual Investor Summit at Sea. Welcome to the Real Estate Guys Radio Show. I'm your host, Robert Helms, with me, financial strategist, co-host, Russell Gray. Hey, Robert. It is a wonderful topic we have today, and that is that uh, you can create equity out of thin air practically. That is, you can force equity to happen. But before we talk about that, let's talk about the different ways that investors find and create equity. Well, way back in the day, in our book, Equity Happens, we uh, actually covered this topic, and we talked about the different types of equity. We gave it terms so that you could begin to think about strategically when I'm approaching a property, what am I going to do to create value? And so a lot of it's been about cash flow lately because cash flow controls mortgages, mortgages control property. And then over time, we say equity will happen. One of the ways equity happens is through amortized equity. That's when the tenant is paying you and you're using the money the tenant pays you to pay down the mortgage. And a little bit of that payment every month goes to paying off the mortgage and giving you a slice of equity by reducing your debt. Of course, that assumes that the property price stays even. Well, don't even assume that. I would just say as far as the loan part goes, it's principal and interest. Your principal amount of your loan, when you make a payment every month, part of it, if it's amortized, is not interest only, part of it is principal. And that principal pay down is essentially you giving back that much ownership in your property. So as hopefully your tenant makes that payment instead of you, then you gain more and more of the equity in the property. Now, separate from that is what's happening to the value of the property. So if we just sit back and say, well, my house has gone up in value. My apartment building has gone up in value because all the apartment buildings in the area have. That's more what we call market equity, where the market giveth and the market taketh away. You're not doing anything for that equity, but a lot of us live in, say, single-family homes where we bought it at a price, and today it's worth a lot more. That is, congratulations, market equity. In the book, we refer to it as passive equity, and that's because you're really not doing anything, and it comes in two forms, and, and I want to kind of address that word value because... You know, we've been talking about this a lot lately when we think about denominating our wealth in dollars. And as dollars go down in value, anything denominated in dollars goes up in dollars. And so it's easy to go, oh, my house went up in value because it went up in dollars. But that may not necessarily be true because if the dollar is falling, it means that the things that you could buy with that extra money also went up in value. So relatively speaking, and we use the example of cars, you know, if I could sell a house for 10 cars in any given given marketplace and 
20 years later, the house is worth more and the cars are worth more, but I could still sell the house for 10 cars and I can still only sleep, say, three people, you know, in a three bedroom house, then the value really hasn't changed in terms of utility. So not to be too confusing. And, and for the course of this discussion, we're talking about a, a property going up in value in terms of dollars. So it's worth more dollars, whether those dollars are worth more in the real world. I don't know. But then you take a look at the concept of dollars in terms of equity growth, and it comes from two sources. It comes from inflation, which is dollars being worth less, meaning things that are real, like real estate and gold and oil and things like that, going up in value. And then there's also the supply and demand imbalance. When you have more people bidding for a property than actually uh, have properties available, or you have an increase in the purchasing capacity, meaning lower interest rates, better incomes, the ability for people to get better loans or easier qualifying. There's a lot of things from a purchasing power standpoint that can drive properties up. In all cases, though, all of those things are out of your control. So if you pick a good market where you've got a good supply-demand imbalance, if you pick a time when maybe interest rates are declining or when loan guidelines are easing, then you could catch a wave. It doesn't really matter. You know, you can be strategic about it, but most of those things are out of your control. It's largely speculative. But if you get it right, equity happens to you and you really didn't have to do much for it except own the property. Right. So sometimes that increase is inflation and sometimes that increase is appreciation. And a lot of folks call one the same as the other. They use those terms interchangeably and they're not quite. Appreciation is when there is more demand for something and its relative value does go up. When everything goes up, well, that's inflation. Now, of course, we have to layer that with the fact that we may be sitting at a time when we have a strong or weak currency, whatever our current currency is. In many parts of the world, real estate is denominated in a currency other than the local currency, which even makes it more confusing. For instance, a lot of, say, Caribbean countries value their property in U.S. dollars, even though they don't use that currency in their country. And so that makes it even more confusing. Our job is today to make it less confusing and to talk about ways that we can create value. So when we talk about forcing equity, we're not talking about inflation. So, so there's some other ways you can create equity. And one of my favorite, probably my favorite equity in the world is found equity, otherwise known as free equity. Right. This is when you find a property that has more value than the seller can recognize in it. And sometimes that's just about their use and your use. Sometimes it's because you have inside knowledge of a marketplace. But there's a reason why the property is, quote unquote, worth more than what you're paying for. It. Yeah, distress often plays a major factor in that. You know, you've got someone who can't afford to make the payment. They've got to get out of the property or to save their credit score or to uh, facilitate something else going on in their life. Maybe they've got a, a job change in they need to move quickly. Or maybe uh, you've got somebody, for example, we did a deal once where a guy had accumulated, I think, 10 or 11 different properties, and he needed to do a 1031 exchange where he needed all 10 or 11 of those properties to sell at exactly the same time. And he was willing to give a big discount to a buyer that could take down all of the properties in one transaction. So the properties individually were worth more, but to him, it was worth it to sell them for less. And so for us, when we came in and bought that property, we made about a million dollars on on that collective collection of properties because he needed to move quickly and we were able to get the deal done. That's found equity. That was just sitting there for the claiming. Now, another interesting type of equity, which you could even include in the forced equity discussion, except it's a little bit outside of your control, is what we call phased equity. And that's when you buy in a new development and the prices go up. In any new development, you typically 
typically see prices increase. Say there's 100 houses that are sold in five phases of 20 houses each. You're going to pay more in the fifth phase than you would in the first. And that's kind of independent of what's happening in the real estate market at the time. That's just kind of a builder or developer's model. And part of the thinking is the person that buys the first house out of 100 arguably takes more risk on the project than the person that buys the 100th house out of 100. And so sometimes phased equity, if you buy early, is another way you can create equity. Yeah, it's forced to the developer because to a degree, he's controlling the rollout. And again, it's not unusual for a developer to sell the first few properties in a development at cost or maybe even a little bit below just to get some traction, just to get some proof of concept. And then as the as the uh, offering begins to take acceptance in the marketplace, they can begin to work the pricing up. But from your perspective, you really don't have control over that because it's up to the developer. So we don't really put that in the category of forced equity. In our nomenclature, forced equity is something you have direct control over. Which is what we're going to spend most of the show talking about. And quickly, the last kind of equity we cover in the book is what we call purchase equity. That's your initial equity. If you bought a property with 20% down, the part that you put down, that's the equity stake you have to start with. And what we're all concerned in is equity growth. Cash flow while we hold the property, perhaps, equity growth over time. So now that everyone's caught up, let's talk about forcing the equity, using the force. This is a way that you can not sit on your hands and wait for the market to give it to you, but this is a way for you to take the reins and create value. And there's three broad categories that we like to use. Yeah, so the first one is new development. This is something that, you know, you see all the time, and this is what developers do. They go take a piece of dirt, and they improve it somehow. The most obvious visual improvement that you see is a complete structure. But there's a lot of other things you can do to a piece of dirt to improve it that may or may not result in something you can see. And we're going to talk about uh, several examples under each of these categories. The the next one is redevelopment. And this is your quintessential fixer-upper, right? You find a house that is in bad condition and you redevelop it. In other words, you fix it up, you make it look better. And this can be done with a single family home. It can be done with a commercial building. It could be done with a mall. It can be done with all different kinds of properties. The key is, is that you're going to go in and make that property better, but it it was already there to start with. Yep. So that's the distinction between those. And uh, last but not least is conversion. So conversion is really just changing the use of the property. You know, you see this could be a zoning change. Uh, common one, especially before the crash, was condo conversion. Somebody would buy an apartment building and then they would change the zoning, convert it to condominiums, and then sell each individual apartment as a standalone unit as a condominium. And people were forcing a lot of equity in deals doing that. Absolutely. So those are the three categories of forcing equity. We come back, we'll delve into them and give you some ideas of ways you can control the increase in price and or value of your properties in the future. You're tuned to the Real Estate Guys radio program. I'm your host, Robert Helms. Need help with your real estate investment portfolio? Check out the resources page at realestateguysradio.com. If you love real estate and have always wanted to own your own business, listen up. The Real Estate Guys and their panel of experts want to teach you how to go full-time fast in the real estate syndication business. These next few years may go down in history as one of the best times ever to acquire investment real estate. There are deals everywhere if you know where to look and how to assemble the resources. The Secrets of Successful Syndication Seminar will show you how to make big money doing big deals from a team of experts that have syndicated projects totaling more than $1 billion. Don't wait for someone to give you a raise 
companies or create a job for you. Attend the secrets of successful syndication and learn how to build a team, raise capital, find deals, and make full-time money in six months or less. Go to realestateguysradio.com and click on events. All the big players use syndication as a way to diversify risk, optimize profits, and earn big money. You can too. Go to realestateguysradio.com and click on events. Hi, this is Patrick from Paradigm Life. I've recently written an ebook called The Perpetual Wealth Strategy. The ebook discusses one of the best investments, real estate, combined with a financial vehicle used by the wealthy, many US presidents, famous actors, athletes, and even Houdini himself. You can download the ebook for free in the resources section on the Real Estate Guys Radio homepage. Don't wait, go download it now. Hey, this is Phil Collin from Def Leppard and Delta Deep. You're listening to The Real Estate Guys. Welcome back to The Real Estate Guys radio program. Thanks for tuning into the show, no matter how you're listening. Be sure to tell a friend about The Real Estate Guys. Today, we're talking about things you can do to a property to increase its worth, and that is forcing equity in our vernacular. You're uh, turning the property into something different, or you're creating it out of nothing, or you're making a change that has it worth more. So let's start at the beginning with what we call new development. So the obvious thing is ground-up construction. You take a piece of dirt and you turn it into a building that sells for more. But before we even get there, there's a really interesting part of new development that can be quite lucrative, and that is land development. Right. There's a lot of folks that we know, that's what they do. They're land developers. A good friend of ours, he doesn't ever want to touch anything above the ground. His whole mindset is, hey, I'm a land developer. Give me raw dirt. I'll do what it takes to make sure that that becomes entitled, utility-worthy land. So now a builder can come in and develop the rest. So he fancies himself the, the guy below the dirt, and he's happy to create lots and tracks and places for developers to go build from the ground up. Yeah, when I was a young man, uh, my wife and I used to go up to the Sierra Nevada mountains, and we'd always look around at properties, and there was a lot of just empty land up there. And then every once in a while, you'd see somebody that says, buildable lot. Well, what is that? That's somebody that took a piece of raw dirt, maybe that had trees on it, and it didn't have any utilities, it didn't have any zoning, and they took and they did exactly what you were talking about. They went through the process of getting the zoning approved and getting the utilities uh, plotted in and, and laid in, in some cases all the way up to the building pad, and sometimes you'd see that. you say, hey, this, this is a buildable lot with pad. So there are different levels that you can do, but there's a big difference between simply raw dirt and something that is actually begun to be ready for a developer, a builder to actually come build on. And the reason you might want to consider land development is because your takeout purchaser is not a homeowner, but it could be a builder or a developer or a business. And depending on how big the plot is and the level of work you do, you can create equity without having to deal with any of the hassle or the detail work uh, or the risk of the takeout because you don't have to deal with the architecture or any of the, uh, all the things that can go wrong and the liabilities that come with giving you know a new buyer like a 10-year builder warranty. That all falls on the developer or the construction company, not on you. And in more rural areas, sometimes there's not much you physically do to the property. It might just be about zoning and plotting utilities, not even putting them in. As you get to more infill and more CBD, central business district areas, then sometimes your land developers take it all the way to curbs and gutters and streets and everything but the construction of the 
unit, the building, whatever that looks like. And so when we talk about improvements to a property, we're talking about all of those things. The physical improvements, you see a house on the lot, but also the curbs, the gutters, the streets, the everything that we had to go into the property to get it ready. So there's, before we get to building anything, there's the land development side. And the reason it can be lucrative is the value drives in any piece of property from the time it's raw land to what's a finished building. And a big chunk of that increase is going to this second step. We also should talk about something called entitlements, and that's kind of the catch-all for any legal requirements the property has to build what you want to build. If it's raw land and it's not zoned or it's zoned in some vague zoning criteria, you can come in and petition to change that and get different entitlements. I'm entitled to build so many units per acre. I'm entitled to build a building of such height and such density. Just think of those kinds of things when you hear someone say entitlements. It's changing the permissions associated with development. And some folks are really good at that part. If you can just figure out some of that, then there's equity to be forced there. So that's the ground up part. The major way we think about new development is when the developer comes by and builds something. And sometimes a developer does go from raw land to a finished product. But a lot of times a, a builder would come, say a home builder, and they buy 60 lots that have already been readied by a land developer. And now their job is to add materials and labor in such a way that the finished product is worth more than the sum of the costs. Yeah, the secret to success in all of this is just knowing who your takeout buyer is. What you're doing is you're preparing the property for the target market. And you have to do an assessment in your local market as far as what that market needs. And again, you know, if you are preparing a lot to be developed, then you maybe don't have to be as precise with that. But if you're actually going to build a finished building, you're going to have to be really precise, right? You can build an apartment building, you could build a shopping center, you could build an office building, you could build a medical building, you could build a storage facility, you could build all kinds of different things that could go on there depending on what it is that particular community needs. And so when you begin to figure that out, then you assemble the, the proper team. And of course, the complexity of the team you need when you're going to actually build something is a lot different than the complexity when you're just going to uh, entitle a property or bring in utilities. Now, before we leave new development, another uh, way of looking at that is what we call master planning. A lot of times a land developer will come in and create more than just a lot or some entitlements, but they'll actually go through and create a master plan development that can add additional nuances such as architectural control, a homeowner's association, common area amenities, and that can be a way for you to get properties ready to increase value for everyone involved. One of the first projects I was ever involved on the sales side is we had listed five lots inside of a development of 27 lots. So the master developer took an old elementary school, turned it into 27 luxury home lots, and they only allowed builders to buy five lots at the most. That was the, what they, their mindset was. We don't want every house to look the same to drive the most value. We want to get different developers. And some developers just bought a single property. Sometimes an owner bought a property. But there were three different builders that each bought five lots and some builders that bought three or four lots. And so it took on an interesting kind of dynamic. And each of these builders had different products, different floor plans, different styles. A master developer can come in and say, no, architecturally, this entire area is going to look a certain way, a certain feel. 
limitations to how many stories, uh, certain lot corridors and view corridors. So there's a lot that a master planner can do, and that really creates equity for everybody. You know, it's it's interesting, Robert, that you bring that up because uh, I, you and I, of course, didn't know each other back then. Back in the day, no. But I actually attended that elementary school in the sixth grade, and then one day I went back to that, and there was a big development there. Yeah, sorry. And I was shocked. <laughs> and then when I met you, I found out you were the guys that actually had listed the properties there. So that was uh, just a funny interlinking of our past way before we get to know each other. Well, it brings up another interesting thing, which is as cities go through population changes, this was a city that grew very, very quickly in an area that was growing fast, and they were building new schools. Then it got to kind of this level of stagnation, and all of a sudden they said, well, we don't need as many schools. And so that's a big part of urban development and planning. So it's beyond the scope of today's show. But the idea is the same, that as we make changes to real estate, it changes and affects the value. Right. That's really the lesson. And this is how you see opportunity a lot of times, especially here we are. We're going to 2016, and we did a prediction show. And you think, oh, my gosh, you know, there's so many things changing. The world is changing. It's changing so fast. It's scary. Well, it's only scary if you're not adaptable and you're not entrepreneurial. If you're adaptable and entrepreneurial, all the change creates these pockets of opportunity. In this particular case, the demographics of this area was changing. When my parents bought into that neighborhood, they bought a brand new house that had been built on an apricot orchard. Yep. So the developer came in and they bought the orchard. They got the whole thing planned. And it was a little community of I don't know how many homes it was. And they bought that home. And I ended up going to that school, which had been there for a while. We were an infill project. There was already all kinds of houses built in that area, but there was this little orchard that was still available. The developer bought it, built the houses, forced equity for himself, and then my parents ended up buying the home. Well, the school that I attended was in that same general vicinity, and as you said, Robert, as we all kind of aged out and the people who bought those properties Many of those people still live in those houses to this day. They right. bought the house and they're still in those houses today. And that's a whole different thing about passive equity that happened to them because that's, I, I know that neighborhood well, right? My parents bought that house for $46,000 and it's worth $3 million today. And it's wow. the same darn house except 40 years older. Yeah. The, there's a whole lesson there. But the point is, is that when you're paying attention to a neighborhood and you're paying attention to the changes and you see these little pieces of property that are available, even something as what you think is permanent as a school could actually become available if you're paying attention. And then you do pay attention and then you just kind of wait, you stalk your opportunity. When the opportunity comes up, you're ready to move because you've already thought it through. So new development is certainly interesting when it comes to forcing equity. For most listeners, you're probably not going to go buy 60 acres and develop a housing tract. So let's talk about redevelopment. Something already exists and we're going to do something to it to change the value. Yeah, so as we mentioned earlier, redevelopment, I mean, that's the thing that everybody thinks about that seems to be the easiest you know everything's already entitled all the utilities are there I'm just going to go buy the property and I'm going to fix it up I'm going to somehow improve it I could be uh, doing an addition I could be doing a remodel I could be uh, finding I might even do a complete teardown on a basic foundation and then build something much bigger you know I remember one of the projects you guys had we were in an area of town where back in the day before it had become largely populated they built these little tiny houses on these great big lots, yep. right? So you'd have a 1,200 square foot house on a half an acre lot, right? And that was very, very common in California back in the day when there was land forever like it's been in Texas. Uh, and then they, you know, you just have modest little houses. Today, the average size of the house is up and the average size of the lot is down. And so you would come in and you say, okay, things already zoned for a single family residence, but instead of a 1,200 square foot residence, we're going to build a 3,500 square foot residence. And you could do that. Well, and there's rules around that. I mean, I remember a couple of the 
uh, architects in the area, they were, they were specialists at that because in a couple of the towns we worked in, you could not change the footprint of the front of the house. The offsets had to remain the same. And so they would come in and they'd take everything down except the little front corner of the house. And as long as that stayed, even though you completely created this mammoth different house, it didn't count as ground up construction. Yeah. And those are the little things you have to pay attention to. And if you're working with an experienced architect in that particular area that really knows the uh, local ordinances, you know, you can do that. Because sometimes you just have to leave one stick of wood up. If you leave one stick of wood upright, it's considered a remodel and not a new build. It's crazy the way these laws work. And it's different in every jurisdiction. So you just have to be aware of that. So a big part of rehab is the folks that come in and we're trying to heal America one house at a time. They find a dilapidated house. You know, give the example of the folks who bought houses 40 years ago and haven't done anything. Those could be prime candidates for someone to come in buy that house with all this deferred, you know, maintenance and all the work and all the outdated fixtures, fix that up and sell it for a profit. So we see all kinds of television shows on flipping this house and that house. We just met a couple of hosts of shows like that this uh, last week. And that's still very vibrant part of real estate. Now we would say that buying a house to flip could make a great opportunity for somebody, but it's probably not real estate investing. It's more of a business, a business of buying something, adding value to it, and selling it for more. It's forcing equity. That's different than being a real estate investor. But understand this, the idea of buying a house that needs a lot of work and doing the work doesn't mean you have to sell the house. That's a way to force equity to keep a house. If you force equity into a house and then keep it as a rental, you're now the beneficiary of that upside. Yeah, we call that flip and hold. The strategy is that you're going to flip, if you will, or rehab the the, the property, but you're going to flip the financing. Right. And then that way you hold the property and you just flip out the financing, take your equity off the table to the extent that the mortgage company will allow you to do that and then use the income on the property to service the debt and then hold on to it for the long hall so that you can have passive equity and amortized equity and all the things that we enjoy about buy and hold real estate. One of the strategies of that today, and this has been this way for a long time, is that if you buy an asset that is in really rough shape, many lenders aren't going to like that collateral, right? So there are lenders who will make those types of loans, whether it's a bridge lender, hard money lender, construction or permanent financing, come in, give you a loan to buy this lousy property. You're going to add value to it, actual materials, labor, paint, carpet, all that. And now another lender, or it could even be the same lender, come in and give you a new loan once that property has been completed. You're probably going to get a better rate, a higher loan to value. It's going to be an easier loan to live with. This is actually something that it is a very active strategy in the current market conditions. You've got lots and lots of people who are want to put their money to work. They're in search of yield. And if you are an active flipper, and I want to I want to make a distinction about flipping, because a lot of times the word flipping is considered not to be legitimate investing. And I don't mean investing like you know, the difference between passive investing, what we're talking about, where you just put your money to work and let somebody else do it versus active investing, where I'm out there working, finding houses, fixing up like a turnkey operator would, forcing the equity as an active business. The, the term flipping that people look at sometimes uh, in a negative way is people that buy a property and don't do anything to it and then just try to mark it up and flip it to somebody else, right? The hot potato property. Yeah, you haven't added any value. And again, I'm, we, we're not opposed to that, but we, we do hang out with some people that are uh, negative about that type of activity because you haven't added any value to it. I could make the argument on the other side, hey, if you're smart enough to find a found equity deal and get control of it under the fair market price and you can give it to somebody where there's still some meat on the bone, nothing wrong with that. You've just described what wholesalers do. They look for opportunity. They rarely touch the property in any way. Do they add value? Only a ton of value because 
I, as the person who might buy one of those, am too busy to go foster the relationships, beat the bushes, find the deals, and they have a pipeline of deals. It can be great. So we're not trying to pass judgment on on real estate today. We're happy to do that in cocktail conversations around a seminar or something. But the idea today is what are ways that we can do something as investors, grab the reins and create an increase in price or value. Well, the rehab thing right now is a big opportunity. And, and again, there's lots of private capital that is looking to fund those uh, forced equity deals and give you short-term use of their money for a high interest rate, which is a good rate of return on their money. But in terms of your cost, it's really small because you're only going to hold the money for a short period of time. So the short of that is you have a lot of working capital that's available to help you do these kind of deals in this particular market. Absolutely. Hey, we'll talk a little more about redevelopment and rehab and some other ideas there when we come back. We'll also play Real Estate Trivia next, give you a chance to win a prize. On today's Real Estate Guys radio program, I'm your host, Robert Helms. Live nationwide, you're listening to the Real Estate Guys. Find out more at realestateguysradio.com. Are you ready to profit in paradise? Hi, it's Robert Helms. And if you think real estate investing means tenants, toilets, and termites, think again. Located just a short plane ride from the U.S., a virtually untouched paradise awaits. The beautiful country of Belize. When you go to Belize with the Real Estate Guys, you'll spend four fabulous days discovering one of the most intriguing real estate markets I've ever seen. With its jungle rainforests, pristine beaches, and 81-degree turquoise water, Belize is one of the most beautiful places on Earth. Plus, it's considered one of the top seven tax havens in the world. Belize property is on the rise, and many experts think the best is yet to come. But don't just take my word for it. Come experience Belize firsthand at our upcoming investor field trip. When you join us, you'll discover the many reasons we love Belize, like tremendously undervalued beachfront land, super low taxes, ease of doing business, and so much more. Get the details at realestateguysradio.com. Just click on events. See paradise for yourself. Click events at realestateguysradio.com, and I'll see you in beautiful Belize. Hello, this is Robert Kiyosaki. I'm the author of Rich Dad, Poor Dad. And if you're serious about learning how to invest in real estate, listen to the Real Estate Guys. They really know what they're talking about. Welcome back to the Real Estate Guys radio program heard every weekend on this great radio station all the time at realestateguysradio.com. You can find our podcast everywhere. And when you do, tell a friend about the Real Estate Guys. We're talking about ways to force equity, create increased value in properties. Before we get back to that conversation, it's time to play Real Estate Trivia. Uh, your chance to uh, win a prize by knowing today's real estate trivia question, which has something to do with a forced equity property. As soon as you hear the question and think you know the answer, send us an email to trivia at realestateguysradio.com. Trivia at realestateguysradio.com. Include your name and your physical mailing address because if you're the winner, we're going to send you a copy of Second Chance, the latest book from Robert Kiyosaki. That can be yours if you know today's real estate trivia question. Last week, we had the amazing Brian Buffini with us. We asked this. Brian, of course, is from Ireland, and Ireland's one of the top ten, in fact, one of the top five countries of beer consumption by capita. Here was our question. Which U.S. state drinks the most beer per capita? That's an awesome question, and we had a lot of thirsty listeners who knew. The answer is North Dakota. North Dakota is the state with the most beer consumption per capita. Number two, New Hampshire. 
And that's any time of year, not just during the elections. And number three, Montana. Here's our real estate question for this week. There's a particular property in New York City that has been rehabbed a whole bunch of times. In fact, it's a hotel. And I want to know this. Which New York hotel appears in the movies North by Northwest, Funny Girl, The Way We Were, Arthur, The Cotton Club, Brewster's Millions, Crocodile Dundee, One and Two, Big Business, Scent of a Woman, Sleepless in Seattle, It Could Happen to You, Almost Famous, Bride Wars, and American Hustle. There's one iconic New York hotel, and there's lots of iconic New York hotels that have been uh, flipped and rehabbed and reconstructed many, many times. If you think you know or want to take a guess, send us the name of that hotel that appears in all of those movies and a lot more movies, actually. And uh, the first person who gets it right is going to win a copy of Second Chance by Robert Kiyosaki. This particular property has lots of second chances in its past and probably in its future, and that'll be your prize. Send that guest to trivia at realestateguysradio.com. Include your name and your physical mailing address so we can send you out this big old book from Robert. That's today's real estate trivia question. We're talking about forcing equity when the investor does something to change the value of the property. So many people just wait for the market to give them equity and that maybe works out. But here are some things you can do to create it. We're talking about this category of redevelopment uh, or uh, second development chances, a rehabbing property and so forth. And we talked about buying a property, increasing the value, something as simple as carpets and paint all the way to ripping it up and changing the walls and adding and all that stuff as a way to sell a property or a way to keep that property in your portfolio. Another model is the idea of buying a property, increasing the rents, therefore increasing the value. This is what Ken McElroy does. Yeah, this is corporate raiders, people who take over companies, you know, like Bain Capital with Mitt Romney back in the day. These are guys that would buy companies they felt were underperforming, undermanaged. They would improve the management, improve the profitability, and then flip the company by selling it. So it's the same thing. So basically what you're saying is you've got maybe a lazy landlord, you've got a management uh, company that isn't paying attention or a landlord that's not paying attention. And then you can go in there and begin to uh, improve the actual operations of the property. So an operational expert can come in and run a property. And this typically pans out better in a multifamily where you've got more units, but you can do it on a single family home as well too, because if you've got somebody who's not paying attention, they could be renting a property for way less than it would, is worth in the market just because they're too lazy to evict the person or they have a personal relationship and they don't want to increase the rent or whatever. And you get your hands on the property and you can bring it up to market. Well, the thing I think the reason that you make the distinction is based on the way appraisers value property. Most single family houses, regardless of if they're rental properties or not, are valued by the comparative market approach. What or other properties similar selling, not the rent so much. Whereas apartments tend to be the income approach of valuation, and it's more about what is the income. So if I increase the income on a property, let's say I have a way to do that through management that doesn't affect the physicality at all. I just rent it differently and raise the rent. Did I raise the value of the property? Absolutely I did because an income property is based on the value of the rents that it generates. So that's the concept. And you can do both. Ken McElroy typically improves the physicality of the property in some way, but also the operation. Yeah, it's, so it goes two parts. It's just like any business. You know, you re improve the physicality or the desirability. You add washer, dryer, covered parking, some amenity, and then you're able to charge more. So you raise the revenue. The other part of it by being a great operator is you operate more efficiently. Maybe you 
keep tighter control on your expenses, you know, payroll, or you use more efficient purchasing on supplies and carpets and things like that. Things that maybe don't make any difference in terms of the desirability, but drive more profit to the bottom line. When we talk about a property being valued by income, it's not rents, it's net operating income. When you calculate a capitalization rate or a cap rate on a property, you divide the net operating income, which is revenue, the incoming rents, less expenses, everything going out, and you get a number, net operating income. You annualize that number by multiplying it by 12 if you did the calculation on a monthly basis, and then you divide it into the purchase price. That gives you your cap rate. When cap rates are coming down, that means that the purchase price is going up relative to the amount of income can be a dangerous time to buy and there's a couple of ways you can improve the situation. One is if you can refinance later down the road at a lower interest rate right now, that's a dangerous game to play because interest rates are super low and they're not trending down, they're trending sideways and up. So you can't count necessarily on being able to refinance to create more bottom line, but you could do things like property tax abatement or challenging the valuation sometimes, that can make a difference. There's things that you can do in operating a property to drive more profit to the bottom line and that's the key. So if you're going to buy a property that is at a small cap rate, meaning that you're paying a lot for the available income and you can't count on refinancing, make sure you have a plan in the operations to either raise the revenue or decrease other expenses besides your interest expense. And our last broad category of forced equity is conversion. When you're changing the use of a property, and Russ, you mentioned this idea of condo conversion that was popular for a while and it probably will be again, the idea of buying an apartment building. Still today, many apartment buildings exist that are individually platted. They have separate APN numbers, parcel numbers, and they were built that way so they had a versatility of their use. And whether they were or not, it's possible for a developer to come along and say, okay, it's a 100-unit apartment building. You know what? These are really nice apartments, Class A apartments. We could convert this into a condominium building and sell the individual units probably at a premium. What I pay for per door as a buyer of a 100-unit A-class apartment building is lesser than the, what they would sell for individually in many cases. So the reason to consider a conversion is if there's a higher and better use. In the case of a condo conversion, it's because you know what? There's more buyers than there are apartments. Why did that happen when it happened? Well, think about when that happened. It was 2000, 2002, 2004. In that time, we had better and lower and uh, less LTV financing than ever before. All these amazing first-time loan programs. So folks that were tenants who couldn't buy because they couldn't save up 20% down payment all of a sudden became buyers and we needed inventory. And there was nowhere to build in a lot of these places. So smart developers figured out how to convert. We saw how that worked out when we took too much existing apartment inventory and turned it into condominiums. But it's only one example, lots of other ways that we can create value through a change of use. We'll talk about some of those when we come back. You're tuned to the Real Estate Guys radio program. I'm your host, Robert Helms. Real estate investment advice right in your mailbox. Sign up for the free Real Estate Guys newsletter at realestateguysradio.com. Forbes rated Memphis the best cash flow market in the nation. And our good friend Terry Kerr at Mid-South Homebuyers has been the premier turnkey rental property provider in Memphis for over 13 years. With an A-plus rating for the Better Business Bureau, Terry has renovated over 750 houses. Real Estate Guys listeners have snapped up hundreds. Discover what these satisfied investors already know. Mid-South's properties are completely renovated with a one-year warranty and a lifelong rental guarantee. They're affordable, well-managed, and easy to own. Perfect for beginning investors and veterans alike. Get in on the action. Contact Terry and his team via email at midsouth at realestateguysradio.com. 
Hi, this is Patrick Donahoe of Paradigm Life. Over the last few years, I've had the privilege of sharing the services of Paradigm Life with you loyal Real Estate Guys Radio listeners through our website, www.beerbank.com, and also on the annual Investor Summit at Sea. Subsequently, we have seen a variety of financial situations across the socioeconomic spectrum and how everyone, regardless of their situation, would improve their financial lives by following the system we specialize in. As a result of this experience, we have created an online e-learning system so anyone without obligation can learn about the infinite banking concept. This free e-learning program is found on our website, www.beerbank.com. So check it out today. The website again is www.beerbank.com. Hi, I'm G. Edward Griffin, author of The Creature from Jekyll Island, a second look at the Federal Reserve. And you're listening to The Real Estate Guys. Welcome back to The Real Estate Guys radio program. Thanks for tuning into the show. There are still a few cabins left, like one or two, uh, for the Investor Summit at Sea. It's going to be an amazing time. We're going to be sailing the seas with all kinds of amazing people, including some killer faculty members, gosh, to spend an entire week with the legendary sales trainer Tom Hopkins or the amazing author Ed Griffin who wrote The Creature from Jekyll Island or how about spending time with Mr. Robert Kiyosaki. You can do all of those things by hanging out with us on the Investor Summit. Go to the website at realestateguysradio.com and click on Summit at Sea. We're talking about forcing equity, and specifically, we had just talked about conversion, the idea of changing a use. And in addition to taking an existing property and changing it, sometimes all we convert is the entitlements that we talked about earlier, say the zoning. A simple zoning change can have a market difference in the value of a property. Yeah, we've talked about this before, but you know, when we very first started working together, we were looking for an office. You guys were working out of a mobile home because it was available and convenient, you know, and you used that as a home office, if you will, uh, away from your regular brick and mortar office with the brand that you were affiliated with at the time. Uh, then later on, you bought a commercial building, but we prior to that, when we were out looking for a property, we found a home. And this was one of these ranch homes that had been part of a farming family, and they owned acres and acres and acres out in a part that was, was once rural that had now become very developed. And so this little standalone house that had been there since forever was there, but it was right on a main street, and it really should have been a commercial property. And we looked at it, we said, yeah, let's go buy that property, and let's convert it. And we went down to the City Planning Commission, we talked to them, would you guys be willing to do this? Remember taking the pictures and going in and saying, hey, I really think this thing should be uh, zoned commercial. And uh, they said that they would consider it was going to be a $5,000 fee to get it done. And we went back to the people who were selling the property and said, hey, we'd like to make an offer on the property. And they wanted a lot for it, right? I think they wanted $1.2 million at a time where the, the house on it was probably only worth about five or $600,000. As a house. As a house. They recognized there was better use for it than just being a house. Yeah. So we ended up doing a lot of the homework. And we said, we want to put a contingency in the contract that says that we will go through with the deal if we can get the zoning thing approved, right? And we were willing to spend the $5,000 dollars to do that as long as we had an out on the contract well they ended up not taking our offer but a funny thing happened <laughs> they took the idea and today there's a medical office building on that very same property in many many cities across our country and lots of countries you'll find this if you go downtown and look at a bunch of say law offices many times they're inside of what used to be a single family house so that's exactly what we're talking about changing the use a lot of other great examples uh, we just looked at a property on one of our field trips that used to be 
be a big empty box store and has been converted to indoor sports fields so people can play soccer and other sports inside which is important when you're in a market where the weather gets really really hot or really really cold that's a great use sometimes you go downtown and you'll see what was once old office being converted to new apartments yep, as lofts. people are moving downtown lofts so there's a lot of different ways you can change the use of a property and you can get creative now it does usually entail having to get that legal entitlement part you can't just take what was a, a industrial building and decide you want to do raves there on the weekends in fact there was a nightclub years ago in uh, northern california that was exactly that do you ever go to one step beyond that was a nightclub in santa clara california that was in this industrial area where they got the permission at night when there was plenty of parking this was a building that was challenged because as an industrial building with a few people working there it didn't take a lot of parking but the reuse was really more for manufacturing and so forth so there wasn't very much parking for a building of this size so these guys said well we have a solution right to the city we will only park cars from nine o'clock at night till two o'clock in the morning at the opposite time so the neighboring folks all got together they got a reciprocal parking agreement and total change of use so you have to get creative when it comes to changing the use uh, there's another one too that comes up sometimes there's these churches that have occupied industrial buildings you know and somehow some way they were able to get an exemption maybe at the time business was soft office buildings were available and they get in and it could be that you get your hands on a church that maybe has grown and has moved to another facility and now this church building that is can be rezoned back to commercial where it's got a lot more value if again the economic circumstances will support that I saw the Red Hot Chili Peppers play at the Limelight in New York City, which was an old church converted to a nightclub. So all kinds of ways to convert. We could go on and on about that one, but we won't. Let's instead uh, wrap up the show with some keys to making forced equity work because this is all good stuff, but you got to really, number one, you got to think about the end, the, the end game. Why is it that you're either changing the use or rehabbing? Is that really going to drive enough value? And in order to do that, you got to know the comps. You've got to know the comps going in. The, if I'm going to say improve a house that is the dilapidated house on the street, I better know the market value at the completed side. And also, what's the demand for that property? Yeah, because one of the things that a lot of rookies do is they go in and they do what they want to do uh, and they try to make the property give them what they need. It doesn't work that way. You have to give the community what it needs and what, what it's willing to accept. And one of the keys to doing that is to having the right people on your team, right? Because you're not going to be able to know everything. You can start with a hypothesis. You can say, hey, this is what I think. And then you need to ask around. Like, Robert, I've seen you go in and do development and you think, I think a retail center would go really good here. And so before you start breaking ground and building a retail center or hiring an architect to design a retail center, what you do is you go to the leasing community and say, hey guys, if I were to build this building, here could you lease it and if they say yeah that'd be great well okay that's a point on the curve right that gives you an indication it validates your hunch that this is what the market would would need you could take it a step further than that there are companies that specialize in these kinds of studies where they will go out and do a market study for you and I'll tell you what that is worth its weight in gold a couple of times we held from pulling the trigger on something we thought was a great idea because these guys came back and said no it's overbuilt there's too much of that here right now we used to build office condominium which is a hot product we went into a couple of 
markets as the first or second developer to do it and did really well. And then all of a sudden there were 15 developers doing it. It got overbuilt. So pretty soon it's like, well, that was a really good idea two years ago. So the point is do your homework on that and make sure you know what the values are. You also want to make sure if you're not doing the construction, and I hope you're not, that you get accurate bids. Yes, because controlling your costs is important, right? In anything, if you say, hey, this is what it's worth on the takeout, that's understanding the market value, as you just talked about, Robert. Then the next thing is, what's it going to cost for me to get this thing ready to sell? And if you miss on that mark, you can suck up all your gross profit and then some, and now you're underwater. So controlling your costs is really important. So the strategy there is making sure that when you're getting those bids coming in, you get guaranteed bids. And uh, there's a whole strategy in that that we don't have time to get into, but make sure you know what you're doing. Another part of that is not only that you know the cost, but the timeline. If you're talking about permits, zoning changes, that stuff doesn't happen overnight. Sometimes it can really languish on. So make sure you know what's the time period, not only the time period for getting things done, but what if there are consultants involved? What if there are third-party appraisers and, and those kinds of folks, architects? That all takes time to do, and time tends to expand beyond uh, what you allow for it. Yeah, and this goes back again to being really aware of what's going on in the market. We personally had this situation happen where we did our due diligence, and our due diligence said that it should take six weeks to get a permit. So we did our homework, and the word on the street was it was going to take about six weeks to get this thing done, this uh, zoning change approved. Well, it ended up that everybody and their brother was doing this particular zoning change at the time and it ended up instead of taking six weeks it took six months and when you're using hard money in particular which is very expensive on an annualized basis and you're trying to get in and out quickly these time delays can be crushing and when you're holding a property and you've got to deal with security and you've got to deal with insurance and interest carry and then and then you are stringing that out with no revenue coming in because you can't get done what you're going to get done until you get all these things in place uh, it can really eat into your profit so really make sure you do your homework on your timelines and all the factors that could affect your timelines uh, when you're doing your budgeting and make sure that uh, and always put in a fudge factor right you want to make sure that you don't let the thing overrun too much and you also just want to be cognizant of your transaction costs you know a lot of times folks will find a great vein of property or an area where they can buy a property that needs work rehab it sell it at a profit but every time I do that there's a pretty substantial transaction cost right and commissions and county and city transfer fees and all that so always do the math the math will tell you what to do but there's a great opportunity out there what we love about forcing equity is it's not market dependent a lot of folks can only make money when the market goes up. You can force equity and make money when the property is going up in value, generally when the area is flat or stagnant, even when values are trending down. A change of use can be a profitable thing. Just be careful out there. Hey, next week on the show, it is your chance to submit a question. So if you haven't done that recently, go to our website at realestateguysradio.com and click Ask the Guys. Anything that has to do with real estate, we'd love to answer your questions. We'll answer a bunch of them next week on the program and uh, coming up in future weeks. A lot of good guests are scheduled, so I'm really looking forward to 2016. Until next week, go out and force some equity to happen. Hello, this is Robert Kiyosaki, and I'm very excited that I'll be joining the real estate guys for their investor real estate summit at sea. Join me, join my friends, join the real estate guys investor summit at sea, and I'll see you out there. Thank you very much. This episode of the Real Estate Guys radio show is brought to you by Paradigm Life. Powerful cash management strategies using life insurance. Learn more at beyourbank.com. Mid South Home Buyers, low cost, turnkey cash flow properties in Memphis, Tennessee. Corporate Direct, asset protection strategies for real estate investors from attorney and rich dad advisor Garrett Sutton. 
Find these and other great companies under the Resources tab at realestateguysradio.com. To learn how you can expose your product or service to the Real Estate Guys audience, call 888-489-7723, extension 4. That's 888-489-7723, extension 4. Or use the feedback page at realestateguysradio.com. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week right here on the Real Estate Guys Radio Show.